Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. We would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 10.45 a.m. at our new location at 5103 Pegasus Court. To learn more about what Sunday mornings at Collective look like, please head to mycollective.church and click on what to expect. There are going to be a lot of great things at Collective this summer as Maryland opens up, so stay tuned for upcoming events and announcements as we continue to try to make an impact in our city. Now here's Sunday's message. I have a love-hate relationship with social media, uh, especially Facebook. And one of the reasons why is because of the arguments that people have in the comments on almost every post. It's rarely helpful, it's mostly toxic, and it's usually mean. It reminds me of what it sounds like outside with the cicadas, just a bunch of obnoxious noise that doesn't ever take a break. Earlier this year, I saw a post online that was so cheesy that actually threw up in my mouth a little bit. Uh, and, and I recognize that I am more cynical than most, so you might not feel like this is cheesy, and that's totally okay. Uh, but the post had this kind of old-school Sunday comic look with a line drawing in black and white of a woman pushing a grocery cart. And above the picture, there was a story that was clearly made up. But the story was about a woman who dropped a can in an aisle at the grocery store, and someone reached down to pick it up for her. And the post went on to say that she was a single mother who was homeless, and her dog got snatched up by an eagle, and the floor was lava. Okay, that's not actually what it said, but it was overly dramatic. And the post finished by saying something like, and when the stranger handed her the can she dropped, she realized it was God who picked it up for her, just like he picked her up when she fell. And I got to that, and I understand, listen, I, some of you guys are like, oh, that's not, that's not it, okay? Uh, I understand the sentiment of this post. It's not my vibe, uh, but I understood what the person was trying to share. And as I went to scroll past it, I saw the comments. And as much as I didn't want to spend time reading them, I don't have time to read them. I couldn't help myself. It was a dumpster fire, and a few of the people pouring gasoline onto said fire just so happened to be people that I knew, and it, yeah, it's none of you. You're fine. Gosh. Every single time I tell stories, you're like, is it me? Well, you got to check yourself. <laughs> but it started with a guy I didn't know saying, this story is dumb because God isn't real. That's called stirring the pot. And you all know what happens on Facebook when someone stirs the pot? People attack. And they did. Comment after comment saying, read your Bible and you'll believe in God. It's all in the Bible. Have you even read the Bible? And the guy responded by saying, I have read it. I just don't believe it. And they had gone back and forth four days before I stumbled across this post. One guy expressing his doubt and three other guys telling him to read his Bible. There was no substance. There was no proof. There was no information to actually help this guy. And it made me realize that we have a problem. And the problem is that many Christians don't often know why they believe what they believe or why they do what they do. Most people who grew up in the church got their beliefs and doctrines from their parents, and their parents got their beliefs and doctrines from their parents or their priest. And they didn't ask any questions because that's not allowed in church, or they just never thought to ask. 
And because of that, we don't often know the reasons why churches do what they do, right? We don't have a strong foundation for our beliefs. And that's why we're doing this series. Last week, CT kicked it off, and he shared the history of communion and why we at Collective make it a part of every single worship service. And he taught us and he reminded us that communion was at the center of the early church worship services because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was the most important part of Christianity. Because that is still true today, we at Collective take communion every week. It's not required. It's not essential. Your salvation does not hinge on whether or not you take communion. It does hinge on the truth that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and resurrected from the dead, and whoever puts their faith in him will have eternal life. But to remember that, to celebrate that, we take communion. Next week, which is Father's Day, we're going to talk about the foundations of Jesus. We talk about Jesus every single week. We're going to talk about the history, who he is, what his life was like, what was his family like. And just like Mother's Day, we're going to have something really awesome planned, so don't miss it. And then we're going to finish up this series by talking about the foundations of baptism. And we talk about baptism almost every single week at Collective. It's one of the next steps on your connection card. But every 18 months or so, I will teach specifically on this topic. Because here's the truth. A lot of you have been wrestling with taking that next step. You've never checked the baptism box on your connection card. And some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, but you grew up where baptism wasn't celebrated, so it feels like it might be a little bit too late to take that step. And some of you grew up in a tradition where someone else chose to sprinkle or confirm or dedicate you, and while you want to own your own faith, you don't want to offend mom and dad. And we're going to dig into all of those things. And that Sunday will be a great day to put that fear and insecurity and anxiety or pride aside and get baptized. If you're ready to do that now, because some of you are, and I know you are, check the box in your connection card, and Danielle will call you this week. But if you're not there yet, or if you see us do it on Sunday morning, you're like, why do they do it this way? Don't miss that Sunday as we close out this series. But today, we're going to be talking about the Bible, the good book, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to focus on three things, how we got the Bible, why we can trust the Bible, and why we should read the Bible. And I'm not going to get to everything. This is, I could do like six weeks on this. This is one week. So you might have some more questions. Come find me. We can talk about it after service. But to start, I want to share some weird facts about the Bible. The word Bible comes from the Greek word tabiblia, which means the scrolls or the books. And the word is derived from the ancient city of Byblos, which was the official supplier of paper products to the ancient world. So the Bible is not a single book but a collection of books from a wide variety of authors such as shepherds, kings, farmers, priests, poets, scribes, and fishermen. The books of the Bible also have genres, and they can be broken up into law, wisdom, psalms, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, the gospels, the acts of the apostles, and epistles, which means letters. The full Bible has been translated into over 700 languages and has been partially translated into 2,883 languages. There are 66 books in total, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11:35, which simply says, Jesus wept. The longest verse in the Bible is Esther 8, 9, and I'm not going to read it because we don't have time for that. The Bible is the most commonly stolen book in the world. It's the best-selling book in history with 5 billion copies sold. And the last word in the Bible is amen. Also, nearly all the villains in the Bible 
have red hair. I don't know if that's actually true. I just heard it one time and I think it's fascinating and true. <laughs> 2 Timothy, two, uh, sec, uh, 2 Timothy 3 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Theologian and author Eugene Peterson once said that the Bible, all of it is livable. It is the text for our living lives. It reveals a God-created, God-ordered, God-blessed world in which we find ourselves at home and whole. One pastor once said that the Bible is the greatest love story ever told because it's a story about lost and broken people who are loved beyond reason by a God who is willing to give up everything to prove that that love was real. But how did we get the Bible? Where did it come from? How do we have it? How was it created? From the beginning of time, people orally passed on stories from generation to generation. And they took this very seriously. It is not the way we tell stories today. The oral tradition of storytelling hinged on the fact that the stories were accurate and not embellished. So for the first 1,400 years, it was all about storytelling. But then in 1400 BC, Moses wrote down the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is called the Pentateuch or the law. And if you're ever reading the New Testament of the Bible and you read and someone says, I follow the law, or Jesus asks, what does the law say? This is what he's referring to. He's not referring to the whole Bible. He's not referring to the whole Old Testament. He's simply referring to the first five books of the Bible. Then from 1400 BC to 100 AD, a time frame of around 1500 years, 40 different authors wrote what would become what we refer to as the Bible. They wrote about poetry and songs, books about prophecies predicting Jesus's life, death and resurrection, books about God's interaction with the people of Israel, books about individuals with great faith, books that came from letters that were written to churches throughout the region. And these individual books, letters, and stories were copied down and passed from church to church and Christian to Christian until councils were held to decide which books would make up the Bible. The first of which was in 90 AD, when a group of scholars convened at the Council of Jamnia to create a strict set of guidelines in order to examine scripture. Because at this point, there were individual books that churches believed were holy. They believed they were inspired by God, but there wasn't actually a set of standards. And so they created some guidelines in order for a book to be qualified and canonized, which means selected into the Bible. And this included scripture that had to be historically accurate. It had to be written by a great patriarch of the faith, and it could not be in conflict with other scripture. And with these guidelines in place, this group confirmed the 39 books that make up the Old Testament. And some of the books were debated. Some of the books that we read right now are debated, including Ezekiel, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And some of the books were cut, including books of the Apocrypha, which are a set of books that are included in some Bibles but are not considered inspired by God. From there, in 250 AD, Rome came under power and Christians were persecuted and killed for their faith. By 303, all Christian literature was to be destroyed and burned. And that should have been the end of the Bible, but many people actually gave their lives to save and protect the Old Testament. 
Then by the fourth century, letters and stories about the life of Jesus started circulating and stories about how Christians should live their life became commonplaces in the church. And so two more councils gathered, the Council of Hippo, yep, and the Council of Carthage, and they got together to determine which books would make up the New Testament. And when they were done, they concluded that there were 27 books of the New Testament, and these were inspired by God. And those are the New Testament books that we have today. And the Bible was complete. During the period known as the Dark Ages, monks worked long hours creating handwritten versions of the Bible. They wrote each word, and when they were done with each page, they would count every single letter to ensure accuracy. If even one letter was out of place, they destroyed the page and they started it over. And they did this until the dawn of the Renaissance. The Renaissance brought a renewed interest in art and science and history and theology, but the Bible was only available to priests in a language that only they could understand, Latin. So John Wycliffe translated the Latin Old Testament into English. In 1450, Johann Gutenberg created the printing press, which was a game changer. It took five years to position all the movable type letters, but he successfully produced the first copy of the full Bible in Latin. In 1535, William Tyndale started to translate the Bible into English, but he was stopped before he finished and he was actually burned at the stake for doing so. So Miles Coverdale finished the job. 30 years later, a group of Bible scholars broke the Bible into the number of verses that we see today to make it easier to read. And over the past 450 years, the Bible has been translated into different English versions. It's been made into a comic book that's pretty legit and it's been put onto our phones. So the Bible that is on the phone in your hand, the one that's on your nightstand at home, the one that you got from your parents as a teenager, or the one that you stole, whatever it is, the journey from stories passed down from person to person to something that you're able to read today is not easy. Emperors wanted it destroyed. The Catholic Church wanted to keep it in Latin because they didn't want common people to be able to read it and see the corruption in the church. Kings literally killed people for translating it because they wanted their authority to be above God's. But people persevered because they believed that we should have the right to read the Bible for ourselves. And we should be thankful for that. At Collective, uh, I teach from the NLT, which stands for New Living Translation. We chose this version because it's one of the easiest to read and understand, and it doesn't change the important pieces of biblical truth. I grew up reading the NIV, which is New International Version, and I'll often read that because most of the scripture I memorize is from that translation. When I'm writing my sermons, I'll break out my Greek New Testament, and I'll read words and phrases in the original language so I can better understand what Jesus was teaching. The translation that is closest to the Greek is the New American Standard Bible. The furthest from the Greek is the Good News Translation, which is kind of more of a paraphrase. And the Bible that my wife and I love the most is the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know it's wonderful. It's not really a translation, um, but I've never seen a Bible that better explains Jesus and his love uh, than that book. And while we do read it to our girls, I strongly recommend it for anybody. Pick it up, read it, it'll change your life. So that's the history of the Bible. That's how we got from stories to where we are today. But why can we trust the Bible? Right? After sharing how the Bible got into our hands, you can see that there were ups and downs along the way. You can also see that a lot of people were involved, and that's never a good sign. Right? So why can we trust the Bible? The first reason is because of historical accuracy. 
Dr. Nelson Gluick is a highly respected archeologist and he relied upon the historical accuracy of the Bible to discover 1,500 ancient sites. Regarding the Bible and archeology, span he stated, it may be stated categorically that no archeological discovery has ever refuted a biblical reference. Scores of archeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline, uh, in, in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. So what he's saying is he actually uses the Bible and the reference in the Bible to find archeological sites. Distinguished archeologist, Dr. William Albright, also asserted the accuracy of the Bible's history, he said this, thanks to modern research, we now recognize its substantial historicity. The narratives of the patriarchs, of Moses and the Exodus, of the conquest of Canaan, of judges, of the monarchy, exile, and restoration have all been confirmed and illustrated to an extent that I thought impossible. On a smaller scale, one of the greatest examples of biblical accuracy comes from Acts 17. It's just a single chapter in the Bible, but historians and archeologists have confirmed the proper locations of Amphipolis and Apollonia, where travelers would spend successive nights on a journey, the presence of a synagogue in Thessalonica, the proper title politarchs used of the magistrates there, the correct implication that sea travel is the most convenient way to reach Athens, favoring the east winds and summer sailing, the abundant presence of images in Athens, the reference to a synagogue in Athens, the depiction of Athenian life, a philosophical debate in the Agora, an altar to an unknown God, the proper reaction of Greek philosophers who denied bodily resurrection. And there are even more that I cut for time. And the reason why these seemingly small details matter to historical accuracy of the Bible is that it shows that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, had an intimate knowledge of the people, customs, and places that he wrote about. It's not just cities and people that have been confirmed. It's cultures and daily life. And hear me when I say this. I understand that there are many things in the Bible that have not been proven true. And I get that. And people try every day to disprove the accuracy of the Bible through archaeology and history, but they're failing. And as science improves, it actually continues to corroborate many of the verifiable details we read in the Bible, proving its accuracy. Another reason we can trust the accuracy of Scripture is that we have no record of any ancient writer denying the historicity of the people and places described in the Bible. But we do have several first and second century sources from outside the church that confirm the existence of Jesus. Many non-Christian historians wrote about the same events with the same details that are found in the Bible and prove its accuracy. One early secular reference to Jesus was a letter written a little after 73 AD by an imprisoned Syrian man named Marabar Serapion. This letter was written to his son and actually compares the deaths of Socrates, Pythagoras, and Jesus. Other first and second century writers mentioned, who mentioned Jesus include the Roman historians Cornelian Tacitus and Suetonius, the Roman governor Pliny the Younger, and the Greek satirist Lucian. And this matters because many people believe that all the writers of the Bible work together to conspire to write this book. But historians outside of the church who were alive when Jesus was alive confirm details of the life of Christ. Here's another reason you can trust the Bible. We have found over 1,000 manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament, 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, and 24,000 additional manuscripts that are in other languages or contain only fragments of the Bible. The second most common ancient documents in the world are Homer's Iliad and Odyssey 
and there are 2,000 manuscripts. We have seven manuscripts from Plato, 49 manuscripts from Aristotle, 10 from Caesar, and eight from Herodotus, who's considered the father of history. So there are more manuscripts of the Bible than any other ancient document in the world. And the truth is we don't hesitate to trust the validity of the manuscripts of Plato and Aristotle and Herodotus, but when compared to the Bible, they're lacking. And it's not just about quantity, it's about quality. As a result of extreme care, the quality of the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible surpasses all other ancient manuscripts. In 1947, there was a discovery of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this provided a significant check on the accuracy of the Old Testament because the Hebrew scrolls that they previously had were the earliest Old Testament uh, was about 1,000 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in spite of a 1,000-year time span, the number of differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the original, what they thought was the original Old Testament manuscripts were quite small and made no significant impact because the variations were simply in spelling and style. While the quality of the Old Testament manuscripts is excellent, it's the best in the world, the New Testament is very good and considerably better than any other manuscript of ancient document. The New Testament can be regarded as 99.5% pure, and that's through over 5,000 manuscripts found. To summarize, the Old and New Testaments enjoy far greater manuscript corroboration in terms of quantity, quality, and time span than any other ancient document in the world. But I think the biggest reason we can trust the Bible is because of the impact that it has on our own lives. Right? It's not just about history in the world, but history with ourselves. It's been proven that reading the Bible four times per week decreases your odds of drinking in excess, viewing pornography, having sex outside of marriage, lashing out in anger, gossiping, neglecting family, overeating, and mishandling money. And reading the Bible four times per week decreases your odds of struggling with feeling bitter, self-destructive thinking, feeling the need to hide what you do or how you feel, having difficulty forgiving others, feeling discouraged, experiencing loneliness, and experiencing fear or anxiety. And so even if you don't trust the archeology, span and even if you don't trust the historicity or the non-Christian writers or the manuscripts of the Bible, and whether you think the Bible is fact or fiction or allegory or flawed or unproven, unfounded, uninspired, or some combination of those things, you can trust the impact that it has on the lives of people who read it. And this leads to the last question. So we know where the Bible came from and we know why we can trust it but why do we read the Bible? Outside of what I just shared about how reading the Bible have a positive impact on your mental, emotional, and spiritual health, this is one of the reasons why I think we should read the Bible. Psalm 119 says this, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. About five years ago, I was the co-dean for a week of middle school camp. And I have no idea why I volunteered to do this. Uh, it was August in Maryland with 100 middle schoolers and the cabins didn't have air conditioning. And for some reason I thought, how hard could this be? It was very hard. Also, I don't know how to interact with middle schoolers so, or kids in general, they're just weird. It's, I've got a six-year-old and two-year-old and they talk to me, I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Uh, but it was tough. We had multiple hospital visits. We had a middle schooler who lost a tooth and then told us it was a baby tooth. And now that I have kids, I realize that's not a baby tooth. He lost a real tooth. We had a counselor that went missing one night, but we found him the next day. Uh, I had to have way too many conversations about why children need to shower. It was six days of pure chaos. 
To make matters worse, one night while the campers were sleeping, we were up in the mess hall and we were getting ready for the next day. And while we were hanging out, a storm rolled through and knocked out our power. Did I mention the camp was in the middle of the woods? It was, it was it's terrible, it's the worst camp ever. So it was pitch black outside and we had to make our way back to our bunks because we knew there were fans on the bunks and we knew the kids would wake up. And I'm not gonna lie, the walk back was terrifying. Listen, I don't care how old you are, it's okay to be a little afraid of the dark, especially when you're in the middle of the woods after midnight. That seems reasonable to me. You can't see what's in the dark. Bears, spiders, serial killers, right? And I remember walking down this pitch black path with my flashlight and I could only see about 10 feet in front of me. And although I couldn't actually see what was next to me or behind me, I just kept walking to where I needed to go. I ran the last 100 yards because I heard a noise and I didn't like it. (laughs) But let's read that verse again. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And I think this wording is very intentional. It teaches us that God's word, the Bible, exists to guide us forward and to light our paths. It is not a blunt force object to beat people over the head with. It's not a weapon created to hurt other people or to make people feel unworthy. When things are dark around us, when we're trying to figure out what to do and where to go, it lights the steps in front of us. Did you hear that? The steps in front of us. So often we look at the Bible as the thing that tells us about all the crap that we have done wrong. We're afraid to read it because we think it's just a reminder about our mistakes and our sins. And yes, the Bible will teach us what we have done wrong, but that's so we know what to do right, how to move forward, how to live a better life. You don't read the Bible to feel shame about your past. You read the Bible to experience freedom in your future. You read the Bible to see how God sees us, to see how much he loves you, and so that he can help you move forward in your faith and in your life and move closer to the life to the fullest that he wants us to live. The Bible is about growth. The Bible is about restoration. The Bible is about redemption. The Bible is about moving toward peace. The Bible is about moving toward hope. The Bible is about moving toward grace. That's why we read the Bible. In the middle of the darkness that is this world, the Bible lights our path. So let me sum up the Bible like this. The Old Testament exists to show us that people cannot be perfect, that no matter how hard we try, we still sin, and the result of that sin is pain, destruction, chaos, and ultimately death. And the Old Testament teaches us that we can't save ourselves and we need someone to come and rescue us from our sin. The New Testament exists to show that that rescuer has come, that God sent his son Jesus to pay to that, that, that our sin creates and offer us grace. And Jesus lived a perfect life in a real city that had a real king. He was arrested, beaten, put up on a cross, and executed by a real man. But then he resurrected from the dead three days later and walked out of a real cave, proving that he was the son of God, proving that his promises were real and that we could be saved from our sin, proving that we are loved, proving that you are loved. The Bible is the greatest love story ever told because it's a story about how we are lost and broken people. But we are loved beyond reason by a God who is willing to give up everything to prove that that love was real. That's why we read the Bible. 
That's the lamp that lights our path. Let's pray. God, um, above everything, we're just so thankful that you want us to keep moving forward. God, that we, we have this tool, we have this gift that is the Bible. It's not an anchor. God, you're not trying to hold us back. You're not trying to force us to turn around and walk back in the other direction through our shame, through our brokenness, through our sin, through our pain. God, you gave us this tool so that we can move forward. And God, we're thankful that it made it through thousands of years of history um, at the hands of people, um, at, the pe- at the hands of people who wanted to see it uh, move forward and at the hands of people who didn't. But God, above everything, we're just so thankful that we have a light for our path. But that we know as we move forward in our life, as we move forward in our relationships, as we move forward in our career, as we move forward in our faith, that we have a lamp, a light steps in front of us. So God, I pray this week, whether people believe that it's historically accurate or not, whether it's fact or fiction, whatever they think, God, this is the week where they pick up the Bible they begin to see what it can do in their life. God, they begin to see how accurate it is in their own life and in their own faith and their own wellness. God, because we know that when we read the Bible, when we get into it multiple times a week, we are healthier, we're better, we're happier. God, we see our future. So give us the courage to do that, to open it up, to read, to learn. Um, ultimately, God, to to learn more about you and how much you love us. God, thank you that we have the Bible. Um, God, I just pray that we continue to use it the right way. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.